This message has come at a uh, price already <clears throat> for me. I'm um, a couple reasons. The whole issue sermon series, frankly, I really don't enjoy. <laughs> I don't. I I love just going to the Word without specific questions. It's not a bad thing to do that. Um, but I love going to the Word and just let it expose both the questions and the answers. That's probably why we've been in John for the last seven years. Um, and I'm eager to get back to John. Uh, it's been a necessary series to deal with some specific things, to make a statement that as the pillar and buttress of the truth, but personally I don't enjoy it. So I'm sharing a little bit of um, testimony before we begin. It's come at a price for that reason, because we're doing something I really enjoy. Secondly, even this, this specific message this Sunday, I reconciled personally 20 years ago. And it, you may not realize this, but for the preacher, sometimes you're sort of selfish. You know, you want to engage something newly, and it's hard to engage something newly that's been sort of old news for you for 20 years. But realizing and being encouraged that it may be brand new for someone else. So that combined with lots of study this week, combined with um, silly stuff like a, some health issues that have kept me off the bike. Isn't that stupid? <laughs> I just really showed my backside to my wife and two boys yesterday and showed them how not to be a husband or a father. And um, I'm thankful for fresh mercies this morning. And... I, sometimes I'm inclined to share that sort of stuff with folks because sometimes you get the impression when you come to a church setting, corporate gathering, that everybody's, everybody's cool except you. Everybody's got, I mean, nobody has any problems and everybody's squared away with the living God and with man, <laughs> at peace with God and man. And what about you? And you just need to know that we're all broken. I mean, you need to know that we're all here needing those fresh mercies. And um, your priest, your, your pastor this morning too, and I'm thankful that they're ample and available. And I'm thankful for um, His grace. Let's begin with prayer this morning. And we're going to do the work this morning. We're going to do the work in this message to engage it. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I am uh, first this morning wanting to lift up. We're wanting to lift up another church nearby. And I want to pray for Trent and Natalie Brown and Gateway Fellowship in Roy City. I want to pray for... Trent's worship, first of all. I want to pray that he is um, aware of his need for grace. I pray that he uh, has a regular reminder of how low grace reached. I pray that he is uh, surprised and amazed by the gospel. That you would reveal yourself to man. That you would give man a new heart. Lord, I pray that Trent is um, enjoying the truths of the gospel as he's <laughs> loving his wife and family. Lord, I pray that that's spilling over onto a people as well, that it fuels his worship, fuels his preaching, his pastoring. Lord, I pray for this church in Roy City. I pray that they are amazed by grace corporately. I pray that together that they have a like mind. I pray that you'll guard them from division and guard them from bitterness. Guard them from the things that just so easily distract a church, that they can all be equipped for worship and wonder week by week. Lord, whatever way that we can serve alongside this church, whether it's just 
dedicating some time this morning to pray for them or whether there's some sort of other capacity. We pray that we were faithful to do so. That you'll guard our hearts as well as you guard theirs and every other Christian church in this community from a spirit of competition. And that we can cheer for each other because your name's at stake. Lord, in these next few minutes in this setting, just pray that we will do the truth justice, that we will expose your ways and your word. I pray that whatever preconceptions that we may bring this morning, that we can put those aside and let the word develop where we should stand and what we should believe and how we should respond. We turn this time over to you, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Our focus passage this morning is Romans 13, but I want, to, I want you to park in Matthew chapter 5 just for a minute. <clears throat> this is the last of a kind of a three-part issue sermon series. First one was dealing with abortion. Last week we dealt with homosexuality, and this week we deal with war. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5 <clears throat> Beginning in verse 38, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to his disciples with lots of other people listening in. It's focused primarily on his disciples. As you have heard it said in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's a tough passage. 20 years ago, as a young Marine, newly commissioned, this was on my mind. As well as sort of a dated version of the Sixth Commandment. And I say dated because I'm going to show you a more accurate view of it. Thou shalt not kill. What does a young Marine do with that? In 1990, where war seems to be looming, conflict is on the horizon, how do you reconcile military, guns, police, grenades, heat-seeking missiles, and war? What is a Christian to do when we've got passages like this right in front of us? We're going to come back to Matthew chapter 5, but this morning is going to be an exercise demonstrating that while one verse is completely true, it does not reveal the truth completely. If a person were to camp out on Matthew chapter 5 and the sixth commandment, they could have a strong argument for being a pacifist, and that's what a lot of people do. When you live on a couple of passages and you don't take in the full counsel, you can be biblically uninformed you can be biblically what i would call myopic nearsighted and that's the case i believe for the pacifists that i think you'll see this morning we're going to come back to matthew chapter 5 later but i want us to go to romans chapter 13 
Let me give you kind of a map of where we're going this morning. I'm going to unpack Romans chapter 13. We're going to glean some important truths from there. And then we're going to go to John chapter 18. And then we're going to look at three of my, my old friends from 20 years ago that I'm going to introduce to you. And then that's as far, out, as, far as I'll share with you where we're going to go. We've got more work to do after that. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he, this governing authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. First thing I want to show you from this passage is that authorities are God-appointed. This is a passage that we engaged on the Sunday after the, the most recent presidential election. Authorities are God-appointed. In verse 1, it says, no authority is except is an authority except from God. We could trust that this is true about Nebuchadnezzar. We could trust that it's true about Darius, about Solomon, about Hezekiah, about Sargon, about Pharaoh, about David. There is no authority except from God. Also in verse 1, those that exist, those governing authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. That's the picture of sovereignty. If God were snoozing and somehow someone were elected to office because God was snoozing, that means that God is not sovereign at all. God is sovereign over all things to include authorities. Who holds what office when? And you need to understand that this may or may not refer to believers God may appoint someone to an office or allow someone to be elected to an office that is not a believer. Great example, Pharaoh. Whether they acknowledge their position is God-given or not, whether they worship our Lord with us or not, their authority is from God. We've got to establish that right off the bat. You can stay in Romans chapter 13. I want to show you a passage from John chapter 19. Just listen to this. Don't turn there. John chapter 19, verse 9. Jesus entered Pilate's headquarters. And Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Even Pilate had authority by appointment. Hitler 
had authority because God allowed it. Stalin had authority because God allowed it. Kennedy, Reagan, insert president, insert governor. No one has authority except that God has given it. Now, you need to understand at the same time that God does not author their sin. God does not author their abuse of power, but they're not there except by his design. Insert the name, insert the date, insert the circumstances. They are there by design. That's the first thing. The second thing you need to understand is that authorities are there to do God's work. Verse 2 says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So the one who resists the governing authorities, it's not like resisting God. It is resisting God. That person, believer or not, is there by appointment. And it's as if you are resisting the living God when you resist authority. Now, verse 3, here's more about what their work is. Rulers, this is like a job description, verses 3 and 4, for the governing authorities. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, ideally. Rulers are a terror to bad conduct, Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive approval. There's two elements of the job description right there. Rulers or governing authority are terror to bad conduct and they are to approve what is good. And then it's rounded out in verse 4. For this governing authority is a servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid because this governing authority bears the sword. And he doesn't bear the sword in vain. He bears it for a reason. Because he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's what governing authorities do. They bear the sword for a purpose. Peter agreed with this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says this, Peter, a guy that you would think would be bucking authority, tells believers that he's writing this letter to. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Not some, not the ones that are just held by Christians. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme are to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's the job description again. Government is given this appointment and this place to punish evildoers and to praise those who do right. Our governing authorities are ordained. They're given authority to make and keep peace and to address evil By restraining it and punishing it. Now even the staunch pacifist appreciates a policeman with this authority. Even the staunch pacifist is thankful before they're mugged or raped for the policeman who shows up and exercises this authority. Few would question that. And looking at it through the lens of Romans chapter 13, we can now worship when we see that happen because God has given us that. Governing authorities who are there for our good. Paul told Timothy, pray for kings and those in authority that there may be peace, that the gospel can be advanced. That's a blessing that we live in a free land where we can meet. 
That's a God-given authority. You may wonder how far the governing authorities can go. There's a key word in this passage. It's the word sword. It's in verse 4. He does not bear the sword in vain. Let me acquaint you with this word. It's used elsewhere in Romans chapter 8. You can turn over a couple pages just so you see it. Romans chapter 8 verse 35. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, our danger, our sword. That's the same Greek word, makari, that's used over there in Romans chapter 12. And that word in context would be like him saying, our death. That's not a stretch either because it continues. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In Paul's mind, when he's using this word makari, it's as if he's saying death. So it's as if he's saying in this passage that we just read in verse 4, he's God's servant, this governing authority for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because he does not bear the sword to kill in vain. In Paul's mind, that's what that sword does. It's for death. So how far can our governing authorities go? They can go to the point of death. That's a very strong argument for capital punishment right there. Our governing authorities have the authority to take life. Our governing authorities have a God-given sword to avenge evil. And there is no sign that that's limited only to domestic use. Nothing here qualifying that saying, ah, that's only stateside. That's only in continental U.S. That's only within your own boundaries. Why wouldn't she, being the governing authorities, wield the sword if an intruder, thief, or rapist is a foreign intruder? Why would it not apply to a foreign intruder? It's appropriate to make that transition. Our government has the authority to keep peace and to address evil in the world we share. It's obvious in the, in the case of self-defense. If we have an intruder that comes into our borders or territories, but it should be true for a worldwide engagement of crimes against humanity. It just sounds like the Christian thing to do. I've been reading a little bit about the bystander effect Occasions where someone is some victim of some crime and there are 20, 30, 40 people standing by watching. And apparently the more people that there are watching, the more inclined they are to do nothing. That's criminal. For bystanders to stand by and do nothing. I wonder about the good Samaritan. Would he have intervened if he showed up a few hours earlier? I can't imagine that he would have sat by and just watched the whole thing unfold. It seems like the Christian appropriate response to step in against crimes against humanity. If we don't, then we're potentially inactive bystanders to men like Stalin, Hitler, Hussein, or bin Laden. It doesn't even sound Christian to just watch. Our government has the authority to keep the peace and to address evil in the world we share. And we even have what seems to be a responsibility 
to do so. To stand by and watch crimes against humanity just seems criminal. Let me show you some other passages that help round out Romans chapter 13. Look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. There's a picture here of the kingdoms of the world fighting. He says, the kingdom of God is not of this world, or else the servants would be fighting. It implies that worldly kingdoms do fight, as in this case, it would be appropriate reconciling a grave injustice where an innocent man is going to be crucified. That's what worldly kingdoms do. They punish evil and they reward good because God has given them that authority. And Jesus is implying that. He says, but this kingdom is different. It's a potential to consider as a result of this that we live only as one participants in one kingdom, only as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and not necessarily the king, citizens of the world. So we might go the direction of just letting the non-Christians do the fighting. We let those who aren't of the kingdom of heaven just go join the military, join the police force, and do the dirty work for us. While we're grateful, we don't participate in it. And that doesn't sound very Christian either. Do we leave the unsavory work of war to the non-Christians? Some might think that a citizen of God's kingdom cannot be a citizen of a worldly kingdom, but we are citizens of two kingdoms. Paul was a great example, a dude that used the trump card of being a Roman citizen every chance he got. We are citizens of two kingdoms. We never have a right to fight as a citizen of his kingdom, but we may have a call to fight as a citizen of the United States. Now, I want you to meet some of my old friends, Luke chapter 3. I say old friends because these were friends of mine 20 years ago when a young Marine had to reconcile, what do I do with this weapon? Luke chapter 3, verse 14. I'll give you a little context. Actually, I'll start in verse 10 while you're getting there. John the Baptist is preaching and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he just called them a brood of vipers. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. And then he addresses tax collectors. Tax collectors came to, the bat, to, to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than is authorized to do. Now some soldiers, what do soldiers do? Soldiers do what soldiers do. 
Some soldiers came to him and said, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. When I read that, I just, my mind just went after that crickets, crickets, crickets. Is that all you got to say, John the B? This is your chance to address these guys that kill, these soldiers. If it's wrong, it's your chance to engage them and to deal with that, to repent from bearing the sword and killing people. But he says, he, instead, he deals with the, the age-old problem in the military. He's grumbling about your pay. He says, be thankful for what you get paid. And don't extort money from other people. He didn't say repent from war and soldiering and bearing weapons and shooting people, you filthy murderers. He said, be happy with what you get paid. In Matthew chapter 8, another old friend. Verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion, a centurion who was a soldier. Some people think that a centurion led a troop of 100 people, and they likely read, led a troop of a unit of more like 80 to 100, 83 to be precise. I don't know why they said 100, because it sounds like 100. But this is a troop leader. This is a warrior, a guy. To be a centurion, you had to prove yourself in battle. And you actually, when you engaged the enemy, you fought at the front. This is not a guy back sitting on his walkie-talkie talking to the command post. This is a guy out front with his broadsword doing business. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him, is what Jesus said. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith of a soldier faith of a warrior is lauded. This is Jesus' chance to deal with this murderer. He's not a murderer. He's a faithful soldier. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And in verse 22, it says about Cornelius. It says he's a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. He was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. 
Cornelius, a soldier who bears arms as an agent of the government. It's a picture of being a faithful centurion. Pacifism is biblical myopia. However noble, it's biblical myopia. There is a strong case for war, a strong case for the sword, a strong case for governing authorities as God's agents of wrath to do business with what you do with a sword. When you factor in other passages, you realize that the full counsel points toward this picture. So when is God honored in going to war and when is he not we have to deal with the potential that war may not be god honoring something called the just war theory that was developed a long time ago it actually started with greek and roman philosophers but it was rounded out by a man named augustine and some others weighed in on it ambrose thomas aquinas and the church over the ages has developed this testing tool, this litmus test to try and discern what is a just war, which wars are God honoring and which wars are not. We don't have a passage in the Bible that says go to war with Iraq or don't go to war with Afghanistan. So we need these tools and the church agreed with that and the church developed this tool that's called the just war theory. There's two parts of it. There's actually three. Just ad bellum deals with the criteria for going to war. Just in Bello deals with the criteria, the, how you operate in war. And then there's a third part that deals with when do you withdraw. But first of all, I want to deal just briefly with this. Just ad bellum. Because we've got to know that God does care about whether or not we go off to war. First ingredient or first item in the just ad bellum and the criteria for going to war is just cause. The reason for going to war needs to be just and cannot be solely for recapturing things taken or punishing people who've done wrong. Innocent life must be in imminent danger and intervention must be to protect life. The second criteria is legitimate authority. Only duly constituted public authorities may wage war. The Clampets can't wage war. The governor of Texas cannot wage war. The United Nations cannot and should not wage war. They don't have the authority to do so. In the United States, even the president does not have the authority to wage war. In our United States, it's a plural entity that makes that decision, and it's called the Congress. been times in my past where I've heard people discussing, man, I wish the president could just go do it. You've got this cumbersome issue of all these plural people that have to make a decision. I wish he could do it. We don't want that decision to lie with one single person, whether we like him or not. In our Constitution, the Congress is the one that decides if we go to war or not. The next ingredient is right intention. Force may be used only in a truly just cause and solely for that purpose. Correcting a suffered wrong is considered a right intention, while material gain, this is key, or maintaining economies is not. The pursuit should be genuine and lawful peace. It may be to repel invasion, but it 
better not be to adjust the price of oil. Manipulation of global markets is not a just cause or right intention. Nobody should die for that. Next is last resort. Force may be used only after all peaceful and viable alternatives have been seriously tried and exhausted or are clearly not practical. That sounds Christian to me. Man, I want to go with the, the least damaging. I want to go, I want to exhaust every peaceful and viable option. Lethal violence should be employed reluctantly. Reluctantly. Whatever the movies may do with Marines, most Marines that are worth anything don't want to kill people. That's Hollywood stuff. My experience serving with Marines is the Marine that wanted to kill somebody is the guy that was passing out canteens. He's trying to compensate. He's having to pass out canteens. Man, I sure would like to go kill some bad guys. The guys that are really locked and loaded, grenade vests, full magazines, carrying an M16, they don't want to kill people, but they'll do it if they have to. That's the kind of Marines I served with. That's reluctant, reluctant use of deadly force. Man, that's the way it ought to be. I didn't want to serve with someone who wanted to discharge his weapon in the direction of another human being. I did want to serve with men who were willing to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver if we had to do it as a last resort. That's the kind of people I wanted to serve with and the people that I did. Pursuing peaceful and viable alternatives to war just sounds Christian. I pray for governing authorities that are not warmongers, but governing authorities that are sincerely trying to do this. Exhaust peaceful and viable alternatives. Especially so when I have a newly turned seven-year-old that's at the age where he could go off for military service. I'd like to know that other things were exhausted The last thing for this first section of just war is proportionality. The anticipated benefits of waging war must be proportionate to its expected evils or harms. Proportional sense of means and ends. You don't kill ants with TNT. Should be a proportional response. It just sounds Christian. In modern terms, just war is waged in terms of self-defense or in defense of another with sufficient provocation. Now, Justin Bellow, once war has begun, just war theory directs how combatants are to act. Now, I realize that most of you will never serve. If you're like me, you're past that age. But you may have children who do. Some of the kids in here may serve someday. Nobody ever equipped me for this. I was on my own 20 years ago trying to reconcile this. So I realize right now we may be equipping tomorrow's church to deal with how do we deal in com- with this, these sort of issues in combat? How do we fight Christianly? Three things. First of all, distinction. The acts of war should be directed toward enemy combatants, not toward non-combatants. Secondly, proportionality. It's in the first part. It's also in the second. Just war conduct should be governed by the principle of proportionality. An attack cannot be launched on a military objective in the knowledge that the incidental civilian injuries would be clearly excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage. 
And this third one goes with proportionality, military necessity. Just war conduct should be governed by the principle of minimum force. An attack or action must be intended to help in the military defeat of the enemy. It must be an attack on a military objective. And the harm caused to civilians or civilian property must be proportional and not excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. This principle is meant to limit excessive and unnecessary death and destruction. It just sounds Christian. I spent uh, some time yesterday looking through some old life magazines. 1965, August. It's got some guys on the front that are have been drafted. It's got a little article on the draft and how that's working and who's in charge of that. I'm reading this, trying to climb into this context and imagine being this age at 1965. Being 42, reading Life magazine with my son maybe being 18. Real people, real Christians had to deal with this, and I wonder if they were equipped for it. There's a page here that's dealing on protests or dealing with protests. It's showing pe- people burning their draft card, showing a guy here that's, that's been hit with red paint because he's protesting. And then on the next page, ground zero at Hiroshima 20 years later. I have to confess to you, I knew about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but I never really read about it. I never really studied it. I never really looked at it through the lens of just war. And I look at it through the lens of these last two things for just in bellow, these last two things that we just talked about, proportionality and military necessity. And I'm going, ah, what did we do? Hiroshima, 70 to 80,000 people were killed instantly. We're not talking about a military outpost. We're talking about like somebody dropping a bomb on Dallas. 80,000 people were killed Instantly, another 80,000 died within the next three to four months. 160,000 people. The magnitude of it never really even hit me. Nagasaki was 40,000 people were killed instantly. Another 40,000 died from burns and radiation and probably the most torturous things you could possibly imagine in the months afterward. Three to four months, another 40,000 died. I wonder if that passes through the filter of proportionality and military necessity. I looked at bombings like Dresden, Germany, where 20,000 to 25,000 German civilians became casualties in a matter of days. This was not a high-value military target. It was sort of the cultural center of Germany. It would be like bombing Venice. People in their boats, art studios everywhere, museums. Be like dropping a bomb on Venice. And it was the RAF and the U.S. Air Force. I look at things like that through the lens of just war and I go, man, what have we done? And I realize on July the 4th, that may seem unpatriotic and I'm going to deal with that too. Hopefully, a guy that you know that wore the title, Marine with a flag on his shoulder, can critique this a little bit. What do we do with an unjust war? Or what do we do with an unjust element within a just war? What are we to do when Romans chapter 13 verse 3 is flipped 
When this passage where rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, what do we do when that's flipped? When rulers become a terror to good conduct? Or when rulers become entertainers of bad conduct? What are the people of God to do if our government calls us to participate in a war that's not within their authority, an unjust war? When our governing authorities depart from their God-given authority to be His avenger, that's the key. His avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer and rewards the good, then we submit to God's authority over our government's authority. There are great examples in our Bible. Daniel is one. Daniel defied King Darius' ordinance to pray only to him. Daniel, knowing the document had been signed. The story's in the same Bible that's saying, submit to your authorities. That's why you got to understand, while one verse is completely true, it doesn't reveal the truth completely. We've got to round it out. They both work, and they work in tension. Let's watch Daniel. Daniel, knowing the document had been signed, went to his house, to his upper chamber, with his windows open, and knelt and prayed to the living God. And he submitted to the consequences. He had three buddies that did the same thing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Defying Nebuchadnezzar's edict to worship the golden image when they heard the music, they refused to worship a golden image and they submitted to the consequences. Then there's guys like Mordecai who wouldn't bow down to Haman, one of my favorite stories. There's stories in our Bible who are men of faith who said, I will go thus far and no farther. That's got to round out these pictures like we see in Romans chapter 13. The saying, submit to all governing authorities. Like 1 Peter, the saying, submit to all governing authorities. We've got to understand there is a place for the people of God to say, I go thus far and no farther. Not just men that have done this. One of my favorites is in Exodus chapter 1. It's really how Moses came into being. It says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, heroes. One of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live they said, we will go thus far and no farther. Another picture in Acts chapter 5. The apostles are arrested and then they're freed. And they're brought to the council of the Pharisees and high priests. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. When men's design and authority departs from God's, that's the point where the people of God say, We will go this far and no farther. Surely we are not naive enough to think that there will never be an occasion for us to say this when it comes to military action. Surely we're not that naive. 
Could a government be slouching toward Gomorrah? Somebody loaned me a book with the best title in the world. Slouching toward Gomorrah in regards to abortion and in regards to the definition of marriage. And we consider them inerrant when it comes to issues of war. Surely we can't be that naive. Is it unpatriotic to say that? Patriotism is a love and devotion to your country. And I want you to know that I do love my country. I wore camouflage utilities with a flag on the shoulder. I can't even remember which shoulder it was. But I wore them for two and a half months without a bath where my camis were rotting off my body because I love my country. I love my country. Patriotism is love for your country, but it's not an absolute and unquestioning allegiance to anything and everything our government says or does. That's not patriotism. I consider the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The church was but a babe. And this young couple, Ananias and Sapphira, decide to sell some property and to bring the money to the church. So they make this commitment before God. We're going to bring this money to the church. And they sold the property, but they withheld some of the money that they had promised to God in the church. So Ananias shows up with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of his proceeds and he brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was called on this, and a few minutes later, he falls down dead and breathes his last. After an interval of three hours, his wife, Sapphira, who should have said, Ananias, I go thus far and no farther. In the same Bible, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says the wife is to submit to her husband in all things, she should have said, I go thus far and no farther. She comes in knowing what Ananias was up to, in cahoots with Ananias. And Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, for so much. Peter says, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. We have a responsibility as believers, as in the case of abortion, in the case of the redefinition of marriage, to say we go thus far and no farther. And you want to know what the Christian response to an unjust war is? I will go thus far and no farther. For those who serve or will serve in Bello. You serve with God as your ultimate authority. For those who will carry a weapon and be in harm's way, you serve with God as your ultimate authority. If your commanding officer gives you the command to destroy a village, including women and children, the Christian soldier or Marine knows that that's God-hating. And whatever the consequences, he's to say, I go thus far and no farther. C.S. Lewis captured this well. He said, I feel certain that one Christian airman shot for refusing to bomb enemy civilians is a more effective martyr than 100 Christians in jail for refusing to join the army. As much as possible, the people of God are to discern whether war is just or not. We have that litmus test to just ask, this authority's been God-given. So are you as an authority doing what God would do? If you are, 
Where's my M16? If you're not, I go thus far and no farther. So what do we do with Matthew chapter 5? I know it seems to stand in stark contrast. It seems to be hard to reconcile. And again, it's a great example of while one verse is completely true, it doesn't reveal the truth completely. It stands in tension to Romans chapter 13. And here's how it works. Matthew chapter 5 on resisting not the evil man, on turning the other cheek, on giving your tunic, is a kingdom ethic for individuals. It's a kingdom ethic for the individual believer or the individual family or for the church. We should be characterized by compassion and love for our enemies as God has loved his enemy in us in the cross. The character of how the kingdom citizens should live is that we should not be overcome by evil, but we should overcome evil with good. I want to show you how it works there in Romans. It's an amazing contrast. Romans chapter 12. Verse 18 and 19. How do you hold these intention? I'm going to show you. Paul's writing to the individual Roman believer. He says, if possible, insert your name in there. Imagine yourself a Roman believer or a Roman family. If possible, families live, or so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There it is, Matthew chapter 5. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There you go, individual family. Live in Matthew chapter 5. And then look over on the the next column. In chapter 13, verse 4. This governing authority is God's servant for your good. Jump down halfway through the verse. This governing authority is the servant of God. This governing authority is the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You as an individual, you don't have the authority to exercise God's wrath. But the governing authority does. As given by God. Individuals are never to seek to punish others. That's the authority's job as given them by God. Some of y'all know the story of Jim Elliott. You might know the story of his pilot, Nate Saint. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were on mission to reach the Aukan Indians or the Wayodani Indians. He's kind of called by both names. In 1956, 1955, 1956, they're trying to reach these Indians. They're flying over and dropping goods, trying to win their hearts and minds. In January, they land at what a kind of a little makeshift airstrip. They're trying to reach these folks. One of my most amazing pictures to me is a picture of Nate Sate, the pilot. He's leaning down over a little handmade plane, biplane that's carved out of wood. He's got one of these Aukan Indians crouched down beside him, eating something that Nate had passed him. And Nate's smiling. The Indian's just eating this thing, whatever it is. It's taken two days before he's murdered by those Indians. I thought it interesting that Nate Saint didn't have a pistol on his hip there. And these guys are carrying spears, these Indians. There's the impression that they went in unarmed 
Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and the others were martyred that day in January in an effort to reach the Wayodani Indians. Something that's interesting about Nate Saint is Nate Saint also attempted to fly for the army. Nate Saint grew up in a Christian home. Here's a little bit about him. When he was 18, he took his first flying lesson, and by the time he was employed by the Flying Dutchman Air Service. His brother Sam was at that time an American Airlines pilot. Sam helped Nate get an apprenticeship at LaGuardia Airport as a mechanic for for American. Nate's work for the airlines gave him a draft deferment. However, in World War II, when he was 19, he renounced his draft-free status to list himself as 1A without appeal. This made his entrance into the war a certainty. His employers and family saw it as a bad decision, but Nate saw it as an opportunity. He hoped to receive $25,000 worth of free flight training. Compliments of Uncle Sam. While he had ulterior motives, this guy made an effort to go serve in World War II. The same guy that landed in Ecuador with no pistol, no weapon to defend himself as a kingdom citizen of heaven looks like Nate Saint was a citizen of two kingdoms fighting for one and dying for another when you take in the whole council it looks like it can be done let me pray Lord, this is a tough topic. It's a tough topic because we value life. We know that man was created in your image. We know that you are love. We have a tough time reconciling how there could be just such thing as a just war. Lord, we surrender our dispositions we surrender what we think ought to be true to what our bibles say is true lord we embrace that we have governing authorities that bear the sword not for a letter opener not for cleaning their fingernails but for doing your business and lord we pray for reluctance We pray for wisdom for our governing authorities who bear this sword. Lord, we pray that you'll guard their hearts from ever pursuing war or pursuing conflict for the sake of economic status or for the sake of voting or elections or polls or approval ratings. Lord, we pray that you will keep them attentive, that their authority is given by you and that they are to act as agents of you Lord we pray for our Congress we pray for our President we pray for our Senate we pray for our Supreme Court we pray for those decision makers that they can have a view of you Lord for those who do know you we pray that they will be vocal and bold in their faith and we pray for those who don't Lord, that you will change their hearts. Lord, in the meantime, we look forward to Christ's return where all things will be made straight 
and all things will be reconciled. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The reason we can die for His kingdom, the reason we could land in Ecuador without a pistol, is because Christ has already won. The ultimate warrior has already defeated sin and death. And we are already, according to Ephesians chapter 2, seated with the victor in heavenly places. That's why we can go into places and live according to a kingdom ethic and die. We should know, too, that this warrior is coming back. Every war, every sword that we see born should make us ache for this day. In Revelation chapter 19, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Anybody who thinks Jesus is a pacifist hadn't read their whole Bible. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. One diadem won't do, one crown. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. As we take the Lord's Supper now, I want us to be mindful of this Lord's return. We consider war, we need to be thankful that ultimately the war on sin and death has been fought. We celebrate that as we take this meal together. And as we take this meal together, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will dine with the victor after he's whipped the nations that have not bowed to him. I thought it would be appropriate on July the 4th to read a familiar song and to read it in context. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Revelation chapter 19. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faith, faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. You know where that comes from? It comes from where we just read. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. I have read the fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my contemners, as I've given you authority, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero, the capital H, hero, born of woman, crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. 
in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. Let's dine together. Let's take and eat. Like as a grateful, blessed citizens of an awesome country, for us to take this as amazed citizens, shocked, scandalized citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let's take this together. It's been a tough series of sermons. I'm glad they're over. But I know really that they're not over because when the seed is cast, you know, that's when it hits hearts and people struggle with it or labor with it or need to talk through it. And I want to encourage you, if you heard a, you know, an abortion series or abortion sermon that you need to talk about, um, uh, last week's sermon on homosexuality or this sermon this morning, you need to process, you need to work through. Part of sowing it is being available to walk with you through it. It's not an insult to say, hey, wait a minute, what about this? I mean, there are lots of questions, and I hope people are wondering. He who takes up the sword dies by the sword. I hope you're thinking those sort of questions. What about this? What about that? That's good. That's good. It means you're listening. So um, if you want to talk through some of this, uh, I'm actually going to be out of town this week. So (laughs) I really am. So, yeah, I'm not making that up. But um, Brad and Scott should be back, though, so you can talk with them. now, you may have to wait till I'm back uh, next week, but, but I, I'm totally available and the other elders would be available too. I know that the other elder, elders are going to stand where I stand because we, we all treat the Bible the same way, really. I mean, without even discussing it, we just land in the same place, and it's really cool. Um, but I know it's hard. I, you know, I've kind of been thinking about this series of sermons being the issues sermons. I've kind of joked about it being the church shrinking sermons series. And, you know, if that's the effect that it has where folks that are kind of taking a look at where they might go to church and like, man, I'm turned off by this. Um, I, I don't want that to happen, but I would rather that happen than to never make a clear statement on anything and just try and make everybody happy. Because then you, you say nothing. And, man, we are uh, being salty and bright and aromatic means that there's clarity We are making clear statements. And let me tell you something. When you make a clear statement or when your church makes a clear statement, when the people make a clear statement, you become an easy target. But we haven't been charged with not being a target. In fact, the next place we're going in John chapter 15 is get ready. The world's going to hate you. He's preparing his followers for the consequences of being clear on saying this is absolute truth. It's a hard thing to do. Man, I'm tuckered. I'm looking forward to a week away. But I'm committing to be available to walk through this with you. It will not be an insult to me at all. So y'all, please do that. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. I also want to let you know that on these three issues, I claim that this is not the final word on these three issues. There may be occasions to revisit these or to round these out. And uh, that's the beauty of the journey that we're on. We can go back and revisit these things and gnaw on them. Um, But for now, I'm looking forward to getting back into John. Low crawling. Let's pray. 
God, we are thankful for our freedom to gather this morning. We don't take that for granted. We recognize that we are blessed and privileged. We pray that we not, um, not forget that. Pray that we take advantage of it and speak openly and eagerly about our relationship with you, about the greatness of the gospel, about our Lord that's seated at your right hand with his work finished. Lord, I pray that today as we celebrate uh, our country, that we celebrate freedom that we have in Christ even more so. As we gather with friends and family and dine and fellowship, that uh, more than anything we do all those things in faith, recognizing that the ultimate war has been won and the ultimate warrior will return someday. And we look forward to that day. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.